0: Well, there's something we all fear. If we're honest with ourselves, it's what motivates us to get up in the morning or stay up late to exercise. It's what motivates us to work late even after the sun goes down and miss dinners with our families and our friends. It's what motivates us to spend way too much money on an outfit that's going to be out of style by next year. It's what motivates us To never let anyone know that we're drowning in a pool of our own private addiction. What is this fear? Ultimately, we're all afraid of looking and feeling like losers. You know, Webster Dictionary defines a loser as a person who's incompetent, unable to succeed, doomed to fail, or disappoint. I mean, that's an intense label to wear. But sometimes, though, no matter how hard we try it still feels like we're losers, we're outcasts, we're failures. And you feel it, specifically, when you, when you don't get that job again that you've applied for. When you did awful on that exam, when your artwork just wasn't good enough to get accepted into the show, or finally that date never calls you back. You overeat again and try to fill the void, or you went to that website you said you would never go to again. It's at those times we ask the question, what's wrong with me? Why am I such a loser? Am I such a loser? Am I doomed to fail? And here's the bad news. You are. <laughs> we all are. If we, let's just sit in it for a second. We are. But we can't stop there. There's good news. And the good news is that God desperately loves losers. God desperately loves losers. He loves the outcasts, the failures, the incompetent, those that are doomed to fail. And this book, it's filled with examples throughout history where he does exactly that. As we've already seen, he's taken a man who feels very insecure in his speech and he made him a spokesman. He's taken a homeless, nomadic group of people and made them a land-oriented, stable nation, or as we will see. He's taken slaves and made them priests. Now, I'm not saying that God plays favorites, but if he did, it would always be the weirdo. It would always be the unlovely. It would always be the incompetent. It would always be the loser. And the story we see this morning is no different. You see, everyone is looking for something. And we're so desperately afraid that if we don't win it, we don't grab it, we don't have it, we don't obtain it, we're going to feel like losers. Part of our culture's response is then just to give us and build up our self-esteem, fill us with positive self-talk. So they'll ask the question, what is it you're looking for? You're a rock star, you're awesome, you'll get, the sky's the limit. Just believe it and you'll have it. Believe in yourself. But when we hear even that, if we're honest with ourselves, that just adds more pressure and more weight upon our shoulders than ever actually relieving our fears of failure. It masks rather than transforms our fear. So there are more, there's a more pertinent question we need to be asking ourselves. If we're going to be honest with ourselves and we're ever going to quiet this fear, this desperation that we're going to be losers. And the question has to be, what is God looking for in us? What is God looking for in us? This morning, we're going to see that God is looking for opportunities to show mercy to desperate people with desperate faith. He's looking for opportunities to show grace and mercy to desperate people with desperate faith. In other words, the losers of our world. And as we enter the book of Joshua, We find the people of Israel are still on the border of the promised land at the Jordan, at the Jordan River. Moses is no longer alive, and he's no longer leading his people. Rather, a new guy stepped up because he's been called up. Joshua has been commissioned to lead God's people to take the land. Now, when we read this story, I mean, especially the book of Joshua, one of the most difficult things and issues for us as modern Western readers to wrestle through is how God plans to give the land to Israel. How he does it. We squirm. I still squirm at the apparent command for just total annihilation for wholesale slaughter of an indigenous Canaanite population in order that the people of Israel might occupy their land. So a frequent question we ask is how could God call his people to do this, right? Before we even get into the story, we've got to ask that question, And this is, it's a legit question, something we can't brush aside, because we take this book seriously, we have to think carefully about the text and how they fit within the whole flow of scripture. So to think well about what God is calling his people to do in this conquest of Canaan, we have to see three things. First, who the Canaanites and the Israelites were. Secondly, who God is. And then the third component that we frankly just don't deal with all that much, who we are. What we're bringing to this game. So first, who the Canaanites and the Israelites were. The Canaanites, they worshiped this pantheon of gods, this group of gods. And this is what they delighted in. They delighted in bloodshed, violence, child sacrifice, incest, temple prostitution, and adultery. All of these different atrocities that were oppressive and exploitative. You know, one, one theologian has even said, in other words, the land of Canaan was no paradise before the Israelites got there. It was a place of destruction, of utter wickedness, because the people, or the, the gods that the Canaanites were worship were impacting their behavior towards self-destruction and abusive behavior. Well, we also need to see that God waited hundreds of years. If we look throughout the storyline of Scripture, He waits hundreds of years before He judges the Canaanites. But eventually... He's had enough of their destructive ways and chooses to remove them from the land. But lest we forget, he does the same thing to his own people later when they take up the same sort of practices. You see, God is judging sin, not ethnicity here. God's purpose from the very beginning was for Israel to be a blessing to all of the nations. And God is constantly providing a way for those who are outside to come inside. This isn't a case of genocide or ethnic cleansing or xenophobia because the basis for judgment of the Canaanites was because of their sin, not their race, not their ethnicity, and not their language. So again, God judges his own people, as we see later, and actually much more than he does other nations, because of their sin, not their ethnicity. Shifting our focus, we see the Israelites... Are unique position. They're in a unique position as God's chosen people at this particular point in time in history. Through Moses, they receive direct revelation from God. And Moses, he's been given this unique voice and this unique choice to be the lawgiver for his people. And the commands given through Moses come from God's own mind, as we read in Deuteronomy 18 throughout our time in Scripture earlier. Believers accept that God's appointment of Moses to speak his will. And without this command from God, then the Israelites would have no right to the land whatsoever. So this is because God is the, al- the, the ultimate owner of land, not nations, not people, and not states. And he can give his land to whomever he so desires as the ultimate owner. And here, he has chosen to give it to Israel. It chafes against us a little bit, but that's the reality of what we see going on in Scripture. So next, not only do we look at who the Canaanites and the Israelites were, but we look at who God is. There we go. As we saw earlier in the biblical story, when God describes his own character in Exodus 34, how does he describe himself? And he proclaims it before Moses. He proclaims himself as a God who's full of love and mercy. But he's also a God who does not let the guilty go unpunished, which is a way of saying he's a God of justice. God can, does, and must judge evil. And we, sometimes we use this language of wrath. His wrath is his purpose disposition against the cancer that is destroying his good world. So he judges the Canaanites for their destructive behavior, their self-destructive <coughs> actions. But once again, I, I bring this up because so many times we just say, how can God do this? But he also does this to his own people when they enter the same behavior. God will not stand for oppression, but against it, and no matter who, Is the oppressor. Now, one of the big pushbacks we feel sometimes is the means of God's wrath here in the conquest. But God, being a good and a just God, he can use whoever or whatever means he chooses to carry out his justice. So, for example, earlier in the Old Testament, he strikes dead Aaron's two sons because they disobey God's direct commands on how to deal and to work within the temple. And other situations, as we've seen in the stories of Scripture, there's the flood of Noah or the plagues of Egypt that, that, uh, that, that are God's way of uh, bringing out his judgment on, on, uh, on uh, broken peoples and peoples that are pursuing destructive behaviors. Yet still other times he uses nations to mete out his justice. So at this point he uses the Israelites to judge the Canaanites. Later he uses the Babylonians and the Assyrians to do that to the Israelites. So we've looked at Who the Canaanites and Israelites were, who God is, and who we are. And this is important, this this whole topic, because so many times people push back against the story of Scripture and they say, how can I believe in a God of the Old Testament that would allow this type of behavior? How could this be acceptable? And in the modern West, we tend to struggle a lot more with judgment. But in many non-Western cultures, still today they struggle more with the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness. So for many in the Korean cultural context, for instance, I went to, to seminary with a lot of Korean pastors. There, there's a lot more wrestling in believing in a God who actually pours out forgiveness to a repentant people rather than a wrathful God. That makes a lot more sense, in, sense uh, this wrathful just God, than a, a forgiving God in a Korean culture. We carry our own cultural biases towards tolerance, acceptance, and nonviolence, quite frankly. And to ignore this is to ignore the glasses that we wear and say that we see the world with 2020 vision. But I want to say, at the same time, that our leaning isn't merely cultural, okay? It isn't merely cultural either. Our understanding of justice and longing actually is rooted in God's longing to show mercy wherever opportunity arises. And this is what we see throughout the biblical story. So because every culture kind of gets part of the story right and part of the story wrong... We would expect the Bible, if it is God's revealed truth, to actually affirm and challenge every culture, which it does so clearly here. Now, I know this may not satisfy all of our questions, and I'm always open to more dialogue about this offhand or even in groups. If you want to get together a group of five or uh, folks or more for a cup of coffee, I would love to do that. But this should at least give us enough courage to listen and explore this morning's story as God has to teach us about what he's looking for and those he will save. So first we see, as we said, that God is looking for desperate people. Returning to Joshua 2, the chapter for our time this morning, our story, it starts with a desperate cast. I mean, Joshua sends out two unnamed spies without telling the rest of Israel in order to scout out the land of Jericho, land of Jericho, which, as you see here, is actually still under excavation. I mean, it's geologically been proven that this is Jericho. It was actually around the same time period. And so you can go to Israel, which I have, and go to this particular Jericho and see what's going on just west of the Jordan. Um, so this is a, and, then, and it has very legendary tall walls. So if you go there, you can see them excavating the tall mud brick walls that are still there under piles of rubble. This is a critical city for the whole land they're about to enter into. These pivotal trade routes go through Jericho, which connect vital trade from the east up into the west over to the Mediterranean. And this is a very tall and ominous structure for Israelites who have never gone into battle before. So you can already begin to see the fear that's sparking up in God's people. But where do we find these two spies right after they... My clicker is going a little nuts. Um, where do we find these two spies as soon as they enter into Jericho, right? They go into the red light district and they stay at a brothel. Um, the language used here, if you go to the Hebrew, it actually carries this euphemisms of physical intimacy. And the story leaves it very ambiguous as to what they're doing and what they're not doing while they're at the brothel. I mean, it's not a very positive picture for these two, you know, espionage Sort of guys. So these two spies, they meet the woman of the inn. And this woman, it reminds us a lot of Fontaine from Les Mis. She was probably, uh, more than likely at least, it's not far from the truth that she was a victim of circumstantial poverty. Women in the ancient Near East didn't have a whole lot of power nor respect in their culture. And so she's using the one commodity she has, her body, to survive and to care for her family. Well, the harlot, her name is Rahab, which is also quite convenient because when you say Rahab, you know, in Hebrew, it, ca- it has a similar sound as a verb in Hebrew that connotes the particular actions of a harlot. Um, and so we see this woman who's desperate. We see she's tired. We see she's vulnerable, but she isn't weak. And you have to see this about her character. She was seen as a loser by all of Jericho, But as we said, God is always looking for desperate people. Why does he look for desperate people? Because desperate people not only are looking for escape, but they're in the place of their life that they know they need help and are willing to take a way out when it's offered. So ask yourself this morning, how desperate am I? How desperate am I? Are you willing to listen? Are you in that place in your life that you would consider yourself a desperate person. Well, in this story, a problem arises. And as we read in verse two, for whatever reason, the two spies cover is blown. So Let's look at that again in verse two. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So somehow the word had spread and the two spies had been found out to be staying with Rahab, and the king wants them handed over now. Well, I was in seminary. Um, I was working late in the evening on, a, on a, an assignment uh, for class the next day. It was about 12.30 in the morning. And uh, I was working, and there weren't any other lights on in the house, but this one small light with me and my laptop just typing away at my thoughts. And when suddenly I hear the door handle begin to toggle, you know, it's 12.30, Start to hear the door handle toggle. There's not any lights on. It looks like no one's home. So I started to get a little antsy. And I remember... Now, I was also a quasi-butler at the time, which is kind of strange. I mean, I had living quarters, and I would go and make breakfast for a British guy named Mr. Perutz, you know? And I would go down, and I'd set out his paper for him, take out the garbage, do the dishes, and those sorts of things. Wipe off his Jaguar. You know, difficult situations. Well, he told me right before they were going on tour, again, to Europe... He said, "Yeah, Gabe, you know, I can't do a good British accent when I'm on the spot. But, you know, he says, Gabe, we've had a lot of break-ins in Kenilworth, Chicago, recently. So just make sure you take extra precautions. And I hadn't even thought about it until the door handle starts to toggle. And I'm sitting there all by myself in this large house. So I sat there with those words replaying in my mind. And I'm thinking, there's no way someone's actually trying to break in right now. But all the while, I can hear this door handle continue to toggle. And hear this like shimmying noise, sounded like someone's trying to pick and kind of shimmy open the door, which is a really easy and old door. I mean, it was kind of like this big English cottage, you know, really easy door to break into. And I forgot to put the chain on the door that night because I figured, ah, nobody's gonna break in. Well, I, you know, you start thinking through all these pieces as you're sitting there, and so my heart begins to race and it goes down from my chest and starts doing laps in my stomach. And I put my cell on 911 and ready to hit send, and then I just shout out hello Yeah, real manly and real strong <laughs> and the door handle stops toggling so I slowly with even more my heart is just about to jump out of my body and I make my way to the door and, and I figure that the person was gone at this time but I was still so cautious that I had, to, I had to find out so I flip on the light you know, that's right outside the door and no one's there surprise shocker and after that, I, I did what any normal person would do. I opened like six different curtains, turned on all these lights, and at that time, I grabbed my shotgun, <laughs> set it next to me in my chair, and continued typing my paper. You know, he's got a good look at what he's messing with if he's going to come back. You know, the, the whole home alone kind of sketch, right? Um, well, our spies, they're feeling a very similar side, I mean, probably more trepidation than I ever was. And we also see that it was dark. They probably even saw the torches of the king's cohort making their way. These unexpected guests. And in fact, uh, these two spies were hidden by Rahab. The text says she'd taken them and had hid them. And the king co- king's cohort, they arrive in verse 4, and the spies' hearts were probably racing with their hand on their weapon ready for a final showdown. Was Rahab going to help or to hinder their mission? It all rests in this harlot. So she responds to the soldier's questioning with, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed for the evening, at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. And she says with almost a certain brevity here that's very quick, almost sounding like she's shouting, So pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Scripture gives us the inside scoop of what she actually does. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords at the river, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, on each stalk of flax, which you see a picture of here, were flax seeds, which yielded linseed oil while they, the, their fibers produced linen yarn. In order to obtain the yarn, though, The flax fibers were softened by soaking, drying, and bleaching. And in the ancient world, the common element for bleaching, something usually had to do with human urine. So that gives you an idea. what they're sitting underneath on the rooftops, which were then crushed and beaten and spun into yarn. Major problem with the stalks of flax is that they stunk horribly, kind of like a pigsty. And Rahab, along with the spies, had hoped that her stinky ruse you know, had convinced the king's cohort not to return. Well, they did fall, this king's cohort did fall for her ploy in searching for the two spies outside the city. But now the men have yet another problem. The gate has been closed. How are they going to leave the city now that the gate has been closed? And yet there's an even more pertinent question. Why would this harlot, why would she, why would she even commit treason and lie to her own people to protect them. She had to have known the consequences of her own decision. And so she gave up the opportunity to finally, for the first time, not only be known as the harlot, but as the heroine of Jericho, the one who had turned in the spies, the one who had been a great redeemer of Jericho. But instead, she looks death in the face and chooses to hide these two men. And if she's found out, we'll die. How do we know? Because the 18th century B.C. laws of Hammurabi, that are very well known and actually replicated throughout the land at this time, says this, because this was a common occurrence. Look, if there should be a woman innkeeper in whose house criminals congregate and she does not seize those criminals and lead them off to the palace authorities, that woman innkeeper shall be put to death. What is this lady of the night hiding that she would even think of concealing these two men? And therefore, risk her own life. Well, God, He looks for desperate faith. And with the pursuers gone, we see in verse 8 that it is a desperate faith in God that's motivating this unlikely hero. Look with me at verse 8 Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction, totally annihilated. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Can you feel the irony of this situation? I mean, when the men had laid down to sleep, the normal actions for a harlot are performed by Rahab when she comes up to them to explain how the fame of the Lord has spread throughout the grapevine in the form of common gossip all the way to the inhabitants of Jericho. And she proclaims that Yahweh is the true and supreme God. No, that's not the normal activities of a harlot. It should shock us. It should stun us. This is very outrageously unnormal. And when the spies were hiding out of fear that their mission was doomed to fail, the people of Jericho and their leadership were scared to death that their city was doomed to fall rather than seeking to foil the plans of Israel and her God. Rahab is the one who echoes what Moses says in Deuteronomy 11 verse 23. No man will be able to stand before you. Yahweh your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot, as he has spoken to you. God had already told him, told Israel this is what he was going to do, and it's coming true. But how is this? I mean, Rahab hasn't experienced the grand plagues of, of Egypt and the Red Sea parting, the manna in the desert, and the giving of the law but she's heard rumors of God and his great power how he moved all creation to save losers slaves from Egypt and maybe just maybe he would do the same for the losers of Jericho a prostitute and her family yeah she's afraid yeah her faith is a bit messy yeah she's desperate But her fear and her desperation lead her to God rather than cause her to fight against him. And hear this. God is looking for the smallest hint of trust and that he might show us mercy and kindness that leads to salvation. He's looking for desperate faith, folks. You don't have to clean yourself up or tidy yourself, your life, to side yourself with God. Maybe you don't feel smart enough. Maybe you don't feel good enough. Your faith isn't strong enough or whatever enough. And that's the point. He comes to you as you are in all your messiness. Trying to get cleaned up before turning to God is like trying to clean your house before the maid comes over. I mean, that's kind of pointless. That's the purpose of her or him coming over to clean. You can't ever get good enough or strong enough or more stable enough in your life to warrant rescue from God. His rescue is mercy, and we don't deserve it. God wants you to trust him where you are, your fears, your failures, your mess-ups, your insecurities. Then he will lead you out. So ask yourself, what do I think will save me? Is it God, or is it your own self-reliance? Now the question that arises whenever the passage on Rahab is preached or taught, is since she's honored for her faith in other passages of the, of the Bible, is lying okay sometimes, right? Is it, you know, does this kind of give us a foothold to kind of twist what we want to say? And even though this isn't the purpose of this passage, to ever be normative or directive or uh, guiding in terms of these sorts of ethics, the question of ethics, it still lingers in our minds. So I just want to say two things briefly about that. First, Rahab knows nothing of God's law but only of God's actions. And she responds where she is with what she knows. So imitating her exact actions might not be the best idea. Um, also, every time she's mentioned in the New Testament, the second half of Scripture, it's because of her faith in God, not her particular action of deception. It never says, look how Rahab lied to the king's cohort. Should we not praise her for this? No, it's for her faith, the root of her actions. Now, nowhere does Scripture come out and affirm her lying, and we see many times that broken people and desperate people of faith throughout Scripture are doing things we wouldn't necessarily call one another to do. They're people of faith. They're desperate people of faith. They're not perfect people doing perfect actions. Rather, the, the key, the nugget of this story, is what we do see is a God who is looking for desperate people who will step out with desperate faith in Him, responding to what they do know. These he will spare from judgment, from destruction. These he will save out of his mercy. So if we return to our story, we remember everybody's looking for something in this story. The spies are looking for confirmation that God's promised victory is sure to come. The Jericho, uh, the king's cohort, is looking for the spies to hinder God's victory. And Rahab, Rahab's just looking for rescue. That's what she's desperate for. And as the interaction between these spies and Rahab come to a close, Rahab knew what was coming. And she made the two spies give her an oath that they would spare her and her whole family in the coming destruction. You see, not only does she trust God because of what he's done throughout other lands, but she trusts God's people. And so the spies promise her salvation if her and her family remain in the brothel come time for battle. And they place this crimson cord out to set their building apart from all other buildings so they know not to destroy it. Then the chapter ends in verse 22 by saying, The spies departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. God was already at work in this land before the Israelites ever showed up. And Joshua, a new leader who's afraid of failure, he needed to hear that. All of Israel, who are children of a generation who failed to enter into the promised land, they needed to hear that. And we see a little later in the book of Joshua that Rahab and her family are spared. She did everything asked of her. She has responsibility, and she responds in desperate faith to what she knows, waiting for God's mercy, and God doesn't forget her. So many times in our world, our world just forgets or discards losers. God never discards the losers that are desperate and desperately find their trust in Him. Why? Because God desperately Loves losers. As it says in Romans 5, eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still losers, doomed to fail, sinners, Christ died for us. Now, as I said before, this book is a book about losers. And the world's biggest loser of all isn't the guy who lost 300 pounds on the primetime television series, you know. But rather... The biggest loser is God himself. When he came to earth, choosing to be a loser. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, chose to be born into a poor family, seen as an illegitimate child by so many. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. None of the religious leaders liked him. All of his disciples abandoned him. And the world hated him so much that they thought it would be better without him. So they killed him. This is the ultimate example of what the world defines as a loser. So it shouldn't surprise us to find out that Rahab is actually cited in Matthew chapter 1 as a part of Jesus' genealogical line. He's Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. And now, God calls desperate people to have desperate faith in the one the world considers the biggest loser of all time. Himself. He gave up everything and became a loser so that we could have everything, so we could finally be prized and be loved and favored by a gracious God. God became like we are so that we could forever be with him. Finally, unconditionally loved. Finally, loved forever no matter how many times we fail and we look like losers. God in Christ is looking for opportunities to show us mercy To show mercy to losers because he loves us. That's the sole purpose. Are you desperate yet enough to take his desperate path? Will you admit you need him? Don't take for granted that you have more than rumors. Don't take for granted that you've been given now the the truth of God's work throughout history to redeem losers here in one book. And he is the living word. He came as Jesus Christ to redeem, to save, to glorify the Father. Do you have desperate faith in a merciful God and His way of rescue? If not, no need to clean up to look up. You just got to cry out to be invited in. Don't wait another day because you just frankly might not have one. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in prayer and we thank you for your good purposes and how you've redeemed us and called us to live out Live out your love that you've lavished on us. Although we many times feel doomed to failure, we feel incompetent, we feel like we've made the same mistakes over and over and over again, you love us. And you're longing for us as desperate people, if we're willing to admit it, to give you desperate faith. Faith that just holds on to you and holds on to your way of rescue. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our Savior. May you give us the eyes to see. May you give us humble hearts that bow before you in submission. That our hearts fear ultimately you as we seek to walk in your ways. Not the fear of man. Not the fear of loss of possessions. Not the fear of loss of acceptance. But trusting that you are sovereign and the King of the universe. And you hold our deepest fears and also our deepest loves at the same time. Guide us in your purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.